were coming for blood You could try and take us Book 12. The Reaction. Chapter 1. My name is Rachel. I won't tell you my last name or where I'm from. Here's what I can tell you about myself. I'm tall for my age. Maybe tall for any age. I have blonde hair. I like gymnastics, shopping, and a good fight with bad guys. Not necessarily in that order. People say I'm pretty, and I guess I'm okay. People say I'm confident, and I know that's true. My closest friends think I'm fearless. They're wrong about that. People without fear are just insane. I have plenty of fear in my life. Some days... I feel afraid from the minute I wake up in the morning to my last nightmare at night. But the thing about fear is, you can't be afraid of it. I know that sounds confusing. I guess what I mean is, be afraid if you have to, right? Fear is like this vicious little worm that lives inside you and eats you alive. You have to fight it. You have to know it's there. You have to accept that you'll never get rid of it, but fight it just the same. Brave isn't about not being afraid. It's about being scared to death and still not giving in. That's all any of us do. Any of us Animorphs. We just try not to give in. And in the middle of it all, in the middle of all the danger and betrayal and fear, we try to hold on to what's normal and good. Have to keep up with the homework. Have to be ready for that pop quiz. Have to still listen to music and watch TV and maybe go to a movie. You know what I mean? When you live in an insane world, you have to hold on to the little things. There are six of us. Five humans, one not-so-human. There's me. There's Jake, my more responsible cousin. Marco, my personal pain in the butt. Cassie, my best friend forever. Tobias, who was our first casualty, trapped forever in the body of a hawk. And Axe, the only Andalite to survive their mission to Earth. It all began with an innocent walk through an abandoned construction site at night. The five of us, minus Axe, were minding our own business, heading home from the mall. No one was thinking, hey, let's get ourselves in the middle of an interstellar war. I just wanted to get home, do all those normal things. Maybe watch TV, check out some websites, listen to a favorite CD, do my homework. Whatever. Normal stuff but the damaged Andalite fighter landed right in front of us, and from that point on, nothing was normal again. We are not alone in this universe. There are billions of stars and billions of planets, and on some of those planets, life arose like it did here on good old Earth. On some of those planets, highly intelligent life evolved, just like Homo sapiens, humans, evolved here. Out there in the stars, there are races like the Elemists, who are so advanced they make humans look as dumb as cows. Then there are races like the Andalites, more advanced than us. You know, like a 10th grader is more advanced than an 8th grader, but still in the same zone of reality. And then there are races like the Hork-Bajir, razor-bladed killing machines that everyone says used to be rather sweet, 
and the taxons. Well, what can you say about the taxons? Huge cannibalistic centipedes. Not exactly the good guys of the galaxy. Not exactly nice. And then there are the Yurks. The Yurks who enslaved the hork The Yurks who made a devil's deal with the taxons. The Yurks who spread throughout the galaxy like a virus, attacking one race after another, enslaving, destroying. They are parasites. Just gray slugs, really. In their natural state, you could step on one and squash it, like a snail without its shell. But Yurks have the ability to infest other species, to crawl and slither and squirm inside their heads. They flatten their bodies out and wrap themselves around the brain, sinking into every crevice. They tie into the brain, they take over the brain and enslave the poor creature, making it a controller. They did this to the hork and the Geds and the Taxons. All hork and Taxons and Geds are controllers. They've even done it to one Andalite, but only one, luckily. And they are doing it to humans. Hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of humans. Some controllers are taken against their will. Others, believe it or not, become controllers voluntarily. That's always been the thing that made me maddest. Anyone can lose a battle. But to choose to surrender? To become a traitor? That's just sick. The Yorks have a front organization they call the Sharing. It's supposed to be like some kind of Boy Scouts or something, except they take girls as well as boys, and adults as well as kids. Supposedly, it's this big family thing. You know, cookouts and rafting trips and everyone just one big happy family. Except that the reality is, the sharing is run by the Yurks. They use it to learn about human society. They use it to disguise their meetings. And they use it to recruit new members. I always wondered what lies they told people to get them to agree to become controllers. Now I know. At least I know what it took to get one person to betray his entire planet. I guess he betrayed me personally, too, in a way. Not that he knew me. There were probably a million girls like me with crushes on him. I know what you're thinking. Rachel has a crush? Rachel? The person Markle calls Xena, warrior princess? Well, what can I say? Cute is cute. And cuteness is a very powerful force. And he was the cutest of all cute guys that ever showed a dimple. It was a shame I had to do what I did to him. It hurt me as much as it hurt him. Well, maybe not quite as much. But we'll get to all that grisly stuff later. I'll start at the beginning. Oddly enough, it all started at the zoo. Chapter 2 Field trip. Two of the best words in the English language. Our class was going to the zoo at the gardens. Sure, I'd been there before. And yes, Cassie's mom was head veterinarian, so I could get in any time I wanted. But who cared? Any field trip was better than sitting at a desk, zoning out at a blackboard. Right? I mean, when I was younger, we went on a field trip to a factory that made bread and Twinkies. They didn't even give us any Twinkies. But did I care? No. Because being out, moving around, seeing new stuff, is always better than hard desk chairs. Cassie didn't agree. 
My mom's going to give a little presentation on endangered species, Cassie said as we sauntered along with the rest of the class. A presentation. To us. We were in a big enclosed exhibit area. It was like a huge glass dome over all these different habitats. We were walking along at a slight downhill angle on a winding pathway between leopards and tortoises and Komodo dragons and pythons. All the animals that couldn't be exposed to cold weather. I was enjoying myself, sipping a Mountain Dew through a straw, and checking out the occasional good-looking guy. Why do they even have a python exhibit? I asked Cassie. All they ever do is lie there. That snake might as well be fake. He could be plastic. Now leopards, sure, they move around. They give you dirty looks. But pythons? She thinks she has to be entertaining, Cassie said, still worried about her mother's presentation. It's dangerous when mom tries to be entertaining. See, she'll think she has to be cool and all. She'll start talking about the fudgies, or Snoopy diggity dog, or boys eleven men, or nice is neat. I laughed out loud, practically spraying Mountain Dew from my nose. Okay, the Fuji's Snoop doggy dog, and boys two men, I get. But what is nice is neat? Cassie looked guilty. N-I-N. You know, Nine Inch Nails? I wanted to get the new CD, but I was broke, so I told my mom N-I-N stood for Nice is Neat. I grabbed Cassie's arm and turned her around. No way, you? That sounds like something Marco would have thought up. Cassie quickly looked down at the ground. Then she started laughing. Okay, it was Marco's idea. He said, what parent can possibly resist a rock group named Nice is Neat? See, Marco wanted me to get the CD so he could make a tape. Anyway, it worked. Cassie, Cassie, Cassie. When you start taking advice from Marco, the end of civilization is very near. Besides, you and Nine Inch Nails? Do you even like the band? Cassie made a face. Actually, they're a little depressed and grim and harsh for me. Although it would be perfect for my mood today. Cassie shook her head, worried again. I know she's going to bring it up. She's going to say something like, Saving endangered species is cool. Like listening to Nice is Neat. I'll have to change schools. I'll have to move to another town. She grabbed my Mountain Dew and took a swig. Why, Rachel? Why of all the places we could go on a field trip, why do we have to come to my mom's work? We leaned against the railing above the crocodile pit. About half the class had wandered on ahead. About half were still behind us, and now we were mixed in with a class of yammering, noisy kindergarteners, all wearing name tags. I don't know, I said to Cassie. Just your bad luck, I... Right in front of me, not ten feet away, some dumb little boy was climbing on the railing. Hey, hey, get down from there, you... Suddenly, he was gone. Over the edge. Into the crocodile pit. Chapter 3 Ah! The little boy screamed and suddenly everyone was silent. Then, a split second later, everyone was yelling. Me, Cassie, adults, the teachers and parent volunteers with the children. Help, help! You just fell in! I couldn't stop Tyler, Tyler, Tyler are you alright? Cassie grabbed my arm to get my attention. She stared into my eyes, making sure I heard her. I'll get help. I'll be right back. 
Don't do anything dumb, Rachel. Don't. She sprinted away. I leaned far out over the railing. Everyone was pushing to get a view of the kid named Tyler. But no one could see him. He had fallen straight down and rolled into a shallow alcove at the base of the wall. The way the habitat was set up, there was a sort of island in the middle. Around it was a moat or stream or whatever you want to call it. Just below me, at the bottom of the wall, was a second dry area. I guess that's where the crocodiles went when they didn't want people staring at them. There were six crocodiles in that pit. All six were lying peacefully on the center island, surrounded by the water. They had all been sleeping. They'd been as still and boring as the sleeping python. But now I saw one crocodile eye open. It was a large brown eye with a black slit for a pupil. It was a sly, ruthless eye. If the crocodiles moved for the kid, it would all be over long before any help could come. Another croc opened his eye and turned his head toward the boy. Oh man, I groaned. I took a deep breath. I didn't have any morph that could take on a 15 foot long crocodile. Not my grizzly bear morph. Not even my elephant morph, probably. And even to save a life, I couldn't morph in public. Which just left two choices. Do nothing and let the crocodile hurt the kid. Or do something really dumb. I chose dumb. Look, over there! I screamed as loud as I could, pointing wildly. Every head turned to look. I jumped onto the railing, balanced myself like the amateur gymnast I am, then leapt for the branch of a fake concrete tree overhanging the pit. I grabbed the branch, just like the uneven parallel bars, only it tore at my palms. I swung, then dropped to a lower branch. I scraped my right forearm bloody, but I caught the branch, killed my speed, and dropped the last ten feet to the floor of the crocodile pit. Oh my god, that girl fell in too! No, she's trying to save the boy! Don't be a fool! Someone yelled. Too late, I thought grimly. I was standing on sand. The boy was behind me, sheltered from sight. Six feet of water separated me and the boy from the six crocodiles. They were all awake now, interested, not sure whether they should come on over and eat us or not. And that's when I saw the reason they were unsure. See, there weren't six crocodiles in the exhibit. There were seven. The seventh was lying just inches away, and he was large. Large enough that if this big monster didn't want to share his prey, the other crocodiles were not going to make him mad by trying. He was huge. Oh man, was he huge. Nice crocodile, I whispered. He stared at me with brown-yellow eyes that almost seemed to be laughing. Of course he was laughing. He thought he only had one human to chomp. Now he had two. Then he charged. You wouldn't think something that big, with those stubby little legs, could move that fast. But he was honest like lightning, straight at me. I jumped in the air as that horrible snout snapped at the space where I'd been. I landed on the croc's back, fell, then scrambled wildly to get back atop him. His tail lashed like a bullwhip. He squirmed violently, trying to throw me off. His huge, gaping jaws reached back, daring me to come in range of his sharp, uneven, snaggly teeth. I had one tiny hope. Just one. I hugged his horned, rough back and pressed my palms against him and focused my mind with all my willpower. 
I began to acquire the crocodile before he could acquire me. Chapter 4 Acquiring. That's what we call it when we absorb the DNA of a creature. I acquired the crocodile, absorbing the animal's DNA into my own system, making it a part of me. And, as usually happens during the acquiring, the animal became calm and peaceful. The crocodile's tail stopped lashing. It stopped trying to throw me off. But it turned its head and glared at me with one mean eye. And I knew the peace would not last long. But something else was happening at the same time. For the first time ever, I felt sick to my stomach while acquiring the crocodile. Sick, like I'd swallowed some spoiled milk or something. And at the same time, I felt a swarm of heat prickles all over my skin. But the queasy stomach and nerves were the least of my problems. I rolled off the croc into the alcove beside the boy. There was a bloody gash on his forehead. He was unconscious, but starting to stir and moan. In seconds, the acquiring calm would wear off and the big crocodile would be back. His front teeth were within a foot of the boy. From up above, I could hear shouts and cries. People were rushing to help, but they wouldn't arrive in time. They couldn't even see us in the shelter of the alcove. Okay, Rachel, I whispered. Focus. Do this fast. I felt the changes begin almost immediately, and I saw them happen. I saw the skin on my arms turn yellowish-green, then a darker, almost black-green. My skin began to crack. You know how the bottom of a dried-out lake looks? Where the mud cracks and forms big, irregular patches? That was my skin. Patterns of cracks raced across my arms and up and down my back. I could feel the skin growing hard and crusty all along my back. It was softer, but still stiff, all down my front. It didn't hurt. Morphing never really hurts, but there were still things I could feel. The thickening, hardening, and cracking of my skin. The way my spine stretched and stretched, longer and longer, making little strained bungee cord noises. The shortening of my arms and legs. My legs quickly grew so short I couldn't stand any longer. I fell forward, face down in the sand. The big crocodile was staring, at me now, rather than the little boy. The little boy was coming too. His eyes fluttered. He moved his hands and legs. And as he moved, I could see the big crocodile's eyes focus back on him. Back on his prey. Then my face bulged out. Out and out and out. Like some awful pimple. My teeth and gums itched incredibly as new teeth appeared and old teeth grew long. Soon, I could see my own green scaly snout pushing out ahead of me. It was unbelievably long and already I could sense the incredible power of those jaws. Okay, Rachel, get ready, I warned myself. I knew what was coming next. As the physical changes were completed, the crocodile mind would appear. It's part of morphing. The mind and instincts of the animal exist right along with your own mind and thoughts, and sometimes they can be terribly hard to control. Sometimes, control is almost impossible. The crocodile brain didn't rush at me. It didn't do anything quickly. It was slow. So slow. But it was slow the way a super tanker may be moving slowly, but still be impossible to stop. It rolled toward me. Utter simplicity. No complex thoughts. No doubts. Just hunger. Only hunger. 
I felt it bubbling up inside my own head, like a slow-motion volcano. Resist! But the crocodile mind had evolved millions of years before the first monkey had swung in the trees. The crocodile mind had survived, unchanged, while dinosaurs went down to extinction and the first birds flew. It was old. Old and simple and clear. And it rolled across me, sweeping aside my fragile human thoughts. The crocodile knew two things. There was prey, the little boy. And there was an enemy, the other big crocodile. My eyes looked out of the side of my head. It was good, clear vision, not much different than my own. I could see almost all around me at once. Just behind me, to my left, something struggled and moaned. I could practically taste the blood in its veins. I could sense its heat. Just ahead of me was a big male crocodile, just like me. He was stalking the same prey. Simple equation. Two crocodiles of equal size stalking the same prey. I either had to fight the other croc, or lunge for the prey before the enemy could act, or back away. I spun left, as fast as a snake. I opened my jaws so wide that my own snout hid part of the prey from view. In a second, I would close my jaws on that squirming, moaning little boy and... Sudden movement! I was being attacked! The big crocodile rushed at me with amazing speed. I whipped my tail and turned to meet him. The momentum carried me off the sandbar into the water. Water! Now we could really move. The other crocodile dived, trying to get below me to rip open my soft underbelly. I squirmed and rolled. A tail lashed through the murky water. I snapped. Yes! My jaws closed on something and squeezed. Then, pain! A sudden searing pain in my left hind leg. There was blood in the water. The other croc had my leg. I had his tail. We churned the water to foam, rolling and tightening our jaws. Slowly, slowly, like I was climbing up out of a well, I felt my own mind, the mind of Rachel, start to emerge again. I was too stunned and exhausted by the battle to resist the crocodile's cunning. It had the power of total focus. It had the power of utter simplicity. It killed, it ate, and it didn't care about anything else. We rolled insanely in the shallow water, two genetically identical crocodiles fighting a battle for dominance, fighting to see whose mighty jaws would close on the human child. I saw flashes of horrified onlookers up above. I saw flashes of the child starting to crawl away. I saw flashes of the other crocodiles slithering toward the water. They hoped to take the child while the two bigger crocs were busy fighting. I needed to win this fight to stay alive, and I needed to do it quickly to save the little boy. I did the thing the crocodile couldn't do very well. I thought. I used my intelligence. I let go of the tail at the same second I pulled my hind leg forward with all my strength. It was a slingshot effect. The enemy crocodile shot backwards. I saw his pale belly go by, and I struck hard and fast. He rolled away, defeated. I slew to my right, cutting off the crocodiles who were heading for the boy. Then I raced for the sand and motored up into the alcove, out of sight of the crowd above. The boy backed away in terror. I had no choice. I had to take a chance. I spoke to the little boy in thought-speak. Hey kid, I'm the good crocodile, alright? Climb on my back. Fortunately, he was a cool little kid. Small enough not to question the fact that a crocodile was talking to him. 
he climbed on my back like I was a pony. I slithered to the water and carried him across to the pile of fake rocks where he could climb to safety. Crocodiles do lots of things, but they can't climb. I raced back to the alcove and morphed back to human just as half a dozen zoo trainers armed with tranquilizer dart rifles and nets came rushing in. The kid was safe. I was safe. Even the big croc was okay after some surgery. So, all in all, it turned out to be a pretty cool field trip. And we never did have to hear Cassie's mom give her presentation. Hello, Phantomorphs, and welcome back to another episode of Audiomorphs, the Animorphs Auditory Experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Book 12, we've started with a four-chapter banger because Miss Catherine Applegate wrote a bunch of real short chapters at the start of this one. Uh, but yeah, we're in it, so thanks for listening. Hope you'll continue to listen. And let's uh, just get some of those uh, end show notes out, because I don't really have anything uh, new to add. Thank you for listening. If you use iTunes and would like to give me a rating and review, sure would appreciate that. If you'd like to reach me about the show, that is, of course, at audiomorphscast at gmail.com or audiomorphscast.tumblr.com. I also do a second podcast called OK Crusader, where... I, uh, you know, I get some guests on, and we take random characters from the Marvel fan wiki, and we discuss how dateable we find them. If that sounds interesting, or you want to learn about any of the other weird, dumb things I do in my free time, I have a website now at theapodcalypse.com. That's theapodcalypse. It's like apocalypse, but I put a D in the middle of it. Hey, D, like my name, Daniel. Huh. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. My name is Daniel, and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight. <laughs>